have a lot of cultural work to do in overcoming, um, I was going to say years, then I was going to say centuries, but I'm going to say millennia of bias. From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, this is Trending Jewish with Rachel Burgess. Hello, Brian. Hey, Rachel. And me, Brian Schwartzman. And... Sorry. What you doing there? Getting some intro music in. Oh. We don't get to listen to it on this side. We don't. We don't. On this side of the the introduction. Uh, so this is a really fun episode, I think, because I I have... It's kind of interesting to talk about Me Too and Jewish ethics and fun, but... <laughs> no, there's... I think there's something about... I think one of the neat things about thinking about Jewish ethics and what is the right and wrong thing to do in certain situations, it's so much easier to think about those things when you can bounce ideas off of other people, I think. I think it just it just showed for me how cool it is it can be to get to do this. Um I mean I mean I had a I have a question I've been turning over in my mind, you know, as this me too phenomenon has developed and 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 rocked society and and, and it's sort of boiled down to what, you know, how should most men, how should Jewish men be responding to this? And I get to ask, you know, a rabbi an ethicist an expert, you know, Directly, I feel like most people don't get that, so it just you know reminded me um, it's a privilege to get to host a, a show like this. So, and also I was thinking about um, you know even the term ethics, where if I think about ethics, I think about um, you know white you know like white guys with beards back in the Middle Ages or medieval times that are thinking, you know, that are these rabbis that are just arguing with each other about how we need to live. So something about ethics to me actually sounds fairly old, even though it's actually a very new discipline. Um, And it's and even the um, the idea of ethics is really kind of seeping through in all of these different fields of study, even besides the, the Jewish world where, you know, like you know, journalism, journalists have a code of ethics. Uh, fundraising people have a code of ethics. Um, right. We were talking, uh, we were talking off air. I was, I was, I was saying back in my day when I, you know, <laughs> 20, 20 years ago when I was, when I was, uh, uh, majoring in journalism, they had separate courses in journalism and the law and journalism and ethics. And, and, uh, I got an A in the law class and B in the ethics class with the same teacher. I, I didn't know if that meant I was unethical, but I, I, I think it really it really did speak to me. There's in some ways it's it's easier to discuss the the law can be more clear cut, more cold, and it also um, you know talks about the minimum of human behavior. You know what you're required to do to stay out of jail, basically. Where whereas ethics is is clearly much grayer, more complex, and and uh, you know, and talks in some ways about what the ideal or maximum human behavior should be. So, um, and you can kind of pick what those, and you have to think about what those levels are. Where how do you, you know, you can be a not particularly friendly journalist that doesn't get put in jail versus being like this mensch of a person and a great journalist. And, um, but I'm really excited to have Rabbi. Mira Wasserman here, who's yeah, going to make ethics cool again. We have a real 
philosopher and 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 ethicist uh you know on on hand so we um i think we should make t-shirts with that make ethics cool again right um or ethics is cool i don't know so all right so (laughs) on that note (laughs) it is our pleasure to welcome to the program rabbi amira wasserman who is a passionate teacher and advocate for talmud study who directs the uh Center for Jewish Ethics at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Rabbi Wasserman was ordained at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion and is a Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Beth Shalom in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, Rabbi Wasserman holds a doctorate in Jewish studies from the University of California at Berkeley, and her book, Jews, Gentiles, and Other Animals, the Talmud after the humanities received the Academy for Jewish Research's Salo Baron Prize. So, with that, uh, we are going. We are thrilled to welcome uh, Rabbi Wasserman uh, to our program. And we're going to make ethics cool again. Absolutely. Happy to be here and talking with you. Most people call me Mira. Okay. All <laughs> right. All right. We'll stick to. Uh, we're all in formal. Thank you. So. Um, I guess we'll start out with the the basics for the benefit of the hosts and and our listeners um, as the director of the Center for Jewish Ethics. I mean, could you start by explaining what is Jewish ethics? I mean, it sounds it sounds obvious, but my my sense and also from talking to you in the past, uh, I've learned that Jewish ethics is actually a relatively new discipline. Right. So. Ethics, I like to say, is a discipline that thinks slowly and carefully about questions like, how do we live a good life? What does it mean to do good? What does it mean to live well? What contributes to human flourishing? And there's a long tradition of asking these questions and answering them in a really systematic way that we inherit from the Greeks. Jews have always gotten to the core of these questions. They've always been thinking about them, Jews, but they've gotten to them differently, not systematically. So the field of Jewish ethics is new in that it's seeking Jewish answers to those old questions um, and looking to the sources of Jewish civilization to answer these basic human questions about how to live well and what it means to do good. So what does that mean today? How does Jewish ethics um, evolve with the time? Because I think when I think about Jewish ethics, I think about something um, somewhat old. I'm thinking about Mishnah and and arguments going back and forth between the old rabbis. And what is that like today now that we don't have a lot of those same structures in place? So it's important to say that um, there's a wide variety of Jews Diverse Jewish communities relate to the the sources and to their authority in lots of different ways. I think all Jews ask, wonder about, think through Jewish ethical questions. Some people do it more carefully and more slowly than others. So if you're living in a Jewish community that still feels bound by the strictures of halakha, of Jewish law, um, I think you kind of trust the system, trust the rabbinic decision makers that the guidance that you're getting from the law is going to point you in an ethical direction. I think it's much harder for liberal Jews like us who are entrusted with making decisions on our own. And um, Brian and I have talked about this before. I think that everybody, every Jew and everybody, Jewish or not, 
um, should feel invited to consult with sources like the Mishnah, like the Talmud, um, reading them not as sources of law, but as um, stories and ideas that can sharpen our own thinking about what we really value, what's most important in life, how we live with each other. So I think, I think to be human is to have questions about how to live well and do good. And the Jewish sources are an important source for thinking, thinking those questions through. And what kind of work does the Ethics Center do in terms of creating a process or um, engaging in Jewish ethics and applying it to today? So we do a lot of things. One thing we do is teach rabbinic students how to access the sources like the Mishnah and use them in communities, in congregations, in organizations, in community organizing um, to make sure that as they're leading um, and as they're helping other people make decisions, that they're doing it in a way that's thoughtful and that's grounded in Jewish sources. So that a big part of what we do is teach rabbis. Um, another thing we do is get out in the community and try to put these sources in people's hands and to open them up to say that these are sort of not what you thought they were, that they're really getting at relevant questions. So an example project that we're involved in now has to do with um, this Me Too moment that we're in that sort of um, uncovers so many tricky, painful, complex questions about what it means to be a responsible person in the world, in your workplace, in your family, in school, in your community. Like, how do you navigate relationships? It seems like cultural rules are always changing. How do we know what's right? How do we balance competing needs and interests? So, you know, I would say that there's a lot of wisdom in the tradition, but there's also a lot of wisdom in um, contemporary Jews' lives. And those are both sources um, as we're thinking through some of the difficult questions that arise. So that's really what I've been spending a lot of my time research and talking to people about lately. And you you have this really powerful op-ed in, in the forward that we'll, we'll plug on our, uh, on our episode page um, about this. But I mean, yes, the, the Me Too movement has been, has been earth, you know, almost earth shattering. It's, 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 it's taken what existed in the private realm and put it out in the public um, in, in a way that really crosses, you know, crosses society from the workplace to the Hollywood movie studio. And, and it, you know, it almost reminds me a little bit of what happened with the, um, you know, with the, the coming out of the, the sex abuse scandals in the church in the early 2000s, kind of taking taking what everybody thought was happening and actually you know bringing it to life and and confirm um i guess i just want to start by saying at its base level like you know not abusing another person doesn't sound like a complex ethical question so i was i was just but clearly the world and and life is a lot more complicated than that so i was wondering if you could really lay out what are some of the ethical behavioral questions that have been raised or brought to light by the events and, and stories of the past six months, year. Mm-hmm. I, so first of all, I really appreciate your saying that there are some things that are complicated, subtle, tricky, that we need to think carefully about. And there's some things that are really clear, right? 
one way that I think ethicists can be important in this moment is to make some ethical distinctions between really clear miscarriages of justice, of abuse and exploitation of people using their power to do evil, that on the one hand, and situations that are maybe more open to interpretation or maybe clearly bad, but not necessarily criminal, things like that. So one big point of difficulty that I mention in this op-ed is that, you know, this has been a liberating moment with all of these stories pouring forth, pouring forth. Um, and we see that there are a lot of forces that conspire to keep victims silenced for years, sometimes for decades. Vulnerable people were not safe to tell their stories and to call out abusers, even when abuse was really clear and egregious. It was too dangerous to tell a story. Um, there's this phenomenon that once one person speaks out, it becomes easier for the next person and the next person and the next person. And that's how you can build a case and that's how you can seek justice. But what about when there's one report, right? We learn in other realms of life that people deserve the benefit of the doubt, that people are innocent until proven guilty. So how do you protect the reputation, the livelihood of people who've been accused when you still um, don't know for sure if something egregious happened. That's sort of one really tricky ethical question. And it's a conundrum because unless you take report, even whispers of reports, seriously, you might never get to the truth. But the second you take it seriously and you give it a public hearing, already the person who's been accused is is suffering, right? Like in, in the case that I guess the well-known case of Eli Wiesel, we have somebody generally pretty highly thought of who didn't have a chance to defend himself was 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 deceased at the time, you know, uh, the abuse came out. So I guess that makes how to think about those accusations even even potentially thornier? Or? That makes it thorny. Yeah. I mean, I, so I have to say, in the overwhelming vast majority of cases, I think it the victim's complaints are, are real and need to be taken seriously. And we have a lot of cultural work to do in overcoming, um, I was going to say years, then I was going to say centuries, but I'm going to say millennia of bias that didn't take women's stories seriously. And not all victims are women. But if you think about the majority of victims being women and children, um, those are folks whose voices haven't been heard, right? So I think um, the real cultural learning that we need to do right now is to believe victims, take them seriously, not make our first response one of doubt, because that doubt is actually serving perpetrators and protecting abusers. So that I want to say very clearly. I also want to say what makes the job of an ethicist seriously is there are cases in which people are accused of things that they didn't do or things were misunderstood or there's some complexity to the situation, right? And you know, I think um, ethicists are the folks who sort of think about how to make those determinations so that we don't treat everything in the same bucket, right? There's a lot of wrongdoing that doesn't reach the level of the worst 
abusers. And we should be able to keep those separate in, in how we think about them and in actually in how we address them in the world. And I mean, we've learned social media can be this great leveler and tool for, you know, a way to basically, um, you know, get get at or seek justice for, a, you know, a, a perpetrator outside of, you know, the normal court of law. But I guess we had talked about amongst ourselves preparing for this, you know, does Jewish ethics have anything to, to shed on, on, on sort of social media shaming and, and, and you know, what, what issues are, are raised by that? It was an interesting thing I was listening to. I have a slight addiction to podcasts, and one of my favorite ones is from CBC Ideas, and they did a podcast about um, basically shaming on social media because on the one hand, social media, especially in the Me Too movement, finally gave a voice where people were seeing people telling their stories and getting their voices out there, and they were finally being heard. Um, and But there was this other example, for example, um, Monica Lewinsky, who, you know, had an affair when she was very young with somebody she was in love with who happened to be the president of the United States and married with like with a child. And she to this day on social media and in the public is still like having to, you know, get um, punished, I guess, for something that she did that wasn't ethical. So at what point, you know, how does I guess how does that question about ethical thought play into um I guess the the next steps of about what to do, how to react. Yeah, it's really tricky because I, you know, I talk about ethics as a discipline of thinking slowly and carefully, and social media is, um, I mean, these are media that work fast, instantaneously, with a huge reach. So I think one of the real contributions of Jewish ethical sources is to caution us about the real severity and gravity of ruining someone's good name, um, that that shaming is a really serious um, transgression. Now, social media, as you said, can be liberating, but um, it's also, like, social media tend not to be really good with subtlety and um, with taking our time to think things through. So I think it's just sort of an exponential expression of the difficulty. It becomes like small difficulties become bigger instantaneously with social media. And um, yeah, shame is a real problem. Also, I want to say that sometimes the acts are real and serious and should be Need, and there needs to be a, an accounting. Like sometimes people do bad things and need to be held responsible. They might need to lose their jobs. They might need, there, there need to be consequences. But the, sometimes social media makes the consequences a lot bigger and th than they need, than is actually in keeping with justice, right? Um, because it might be that you, that it's appropriate for a person to lose their job, but after a period of penitence and learning about what the wrongdoing was, that person should be able to get a new job and to maybe a different kind of job, maybe the same kind of job, but should have another chance of doing better. And the real danger of social media, I think, is it defines people according to their worst behavior that gets the most attention. So... I don't have a solution, but it is a big problem. I'm curious also what, you know, thinking about like this is a new field. Um, 
or this new um, this new discipline, what is that process that you're discovering or that's been developed in terms of deciding on ethical behavior about being able to take that step back and like what does that step back in that process before action look like based off of the work that you've done in the center is done? It's a great question. So um, the founder of the center, Rabbi David Teutsch, um, is really known for pioneering this approach to ethical decision-making called values-based decision-making. And um, in addition to being an approach to ethics, it's really an approach to how communities, Jewish communities especially, organize themselves and what the role of the rabbi can be um, in a community that values democracy, right? So he's saying um, decision-making isn't going to be made by rabbis alone, People have to participate in a discussion and coming to solutions together, um, and it, and a piece of that is being grounded in the value. So that's, I, I think, um, probably one of the most important contributions the center has made in um, training leaders and communities and how to make decisions together. But that's only one kind of ethical decision, the kind of decision that would define policy or procedures for community. All of us as individuals face um, decisions all the time um, that are ethical. I mean, I would argue that I would argue that we really, you know, every time we're interacting with a person, we're sort of tacitly making all kinds of ethical decisions about how we're treating another person, right? And so, I mean, one thing I think that ethics can do is to sort of raise awareness about, oh, how I'm talking to you really matters. It's in my power to give dignity and respect to the person I'm talking to or the opposite, which would be a shame, right? So I think the process looks different in, in different places, but um, our main job as educators is to raise awareness about what's at stake in human interaction and how every interaction is an opportunity to convey something about our deepest values as human beings. That kind of leads me right into a line of a question I really want to get at. And, and I don't know if it's one question or five questions. I don't want to throw it all on, but okay. So we're all, if we're all honest, um, I think, I mean, all human beings Behave and have behaved in, in 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 ways that they're not proud of. I think that's that's just part of what it means to be human. But I mean, my understanding is most of what we've talked about in the Me Too movement have been about ways men have behaved towards women. And and I'm wondering, is there like assuming whatever that the you know the vast majority of men have not you know, perpetrated these hyenas acts or, or whatever, um, or maybe that's a false assumption, but what does ethics or, 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 or Torah give, give any guidance as to what, what the response of men should, should be? Like, should we be all, you know, scouring our, our, our faulty, imperfect memories for, or things we've we've done, ways we've acted, and if so, then then what? I guess is, you know, I don't know if, if we're talking about teshuva or 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 if there's a you know in a statute of limitations on teshuva. But I guess I'm, you know, that's something I've been I've been thinking about, and I wonder if our tradition has any any guidance on that. 
Yeah, so I, I think a couple of things. I think tshuva is a really important concept here, this idea of repentance and return. Um, so like implanted in that idea is that um, people are not defined by their worst actions um, and that when we do something bad, um, we have responsibilities to make it better. Now, so I mean, I think the interesting thing about tshuva is, like, if you've been following conversation in the blogosphere about Jews and Me Too, some some people have expressed consternation that people that things are being dragged up from far in the past. What about tshuva? What about tshuva? Well, tshuva we learn from the tradition. Um, isn't something that happens internally only, right? If you've harmed another person, you got to work it out with another person. You got to seek forgiveness and do the internal work or the work with God to make your chief a complete. Now, I would, I don't want to take this too far. If you're talking about small infractions from years in the past, I think an ethical deliberation is, is it going to be more hurtful? to bring up something from far in the past or more, you know, it might be better to just let let some things lie. If it's a really egregious thing, though, I think it's better to seek forgiveness if you've realized you've done something wrong and not just seek forgiveness. Think about what can I do to make it better, which might mean repairing an, a relationship, acknowledging that some wrong was done, or might be doing something out in the world to try to make it better. But I want to say something else about the responsibilities of men um, and others, and that has to do with being um, bystanders to bad behavior. I think what all of us carry, male, female, non-binary, all of us, children and kids, is um, whether we've perpetrated acts of abuse ourselves, whether we've been harassers, whether, you know— or not, we've probably seen stuff that's made us uncomfortable. We've seen people cross lines. We've seen people use their power in unfair ways. And I, th- my real hope for this moment is it will empower all of us when we see something to raise it in the moment. And I think that would prevent a lot of these big dilemmas about dredging up stuff from the past. Things get bigger as time goes on. We know that um, people who are in positions of power, when their power goes unchecked again and again and again, their abuses get worse and worse. So if you can intervene quickly and decisively the first time you see something, I, 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 I trust that people can learn to be in healthier relationships with each other. So that's what that's what I'm learning. I mean, it is hard to speak up, especially when there's someone who is your supervisor or who has more power than you in a relationship as a bystander. It, like, we've been trained to be polite, to follow the rules, and it feels like we're breaking rules to speak up. So, you know, one thing ethics would say is, like, the rules that are most important are those that are rooted in values of human dignity. It is funny how you think about it where you're thinking about, you know, standing up and saying something and speaking up. And it really is easier said than done because I think um, I think there's a lot of other questions that get involved of, you know, what is this, you know, what is this going to do to this other person? What is this going to do to me? Um, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody. You know, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. And that's like a whole other slew of questions that's really hard to 
to deal with. Yeah, I think these are the questions that are actually most relevant to everyday living. Like, not, you know, how do we deal with, like, these terrible perpetrators? Um, happily, we have courts to decide those issues once once the process is allowed to work. But really, in our everyday interactions, when we see people abusing power in small ways and big ones, what can we do as ordinary people to interrupt and uh, to make sure that acts of unfairness don't happen, to sort of shift the culture to one where everybody can count on basic human dignity. That So, so one thing we're doing at the center is we're going to be developing a study guide that individuals and communities can use to sort of get at a lot of these questions we've been raising through the lens of Jewish sources. My thought is that by having conversations like the one we're having now, like raising up what ordinary, everyday people can do in regular interactions, like once you take the time to sort of think that through when you're not in the moment, you're in a better position when that critical moment of decision happens to be like, oh, yeah, I thought this through. I know it's my job to say something now. And by the way, it doesn't always have to be like, you know, I declare you've just overstepped your power. Um, it can be very subtle. It can be redirecting a conversation. It can be like, oh, I'm not so sure that, jo-. You, you know, like, I, I don't like that joke, but have you heard this one? Just a, a simple redirection can make a huge difference. Sometimes things do need a prophetic voice to call it out, but sometimes in small ways and big, we can we can make a difference without having to take a big risk. And if we think about it first, we'll be better prepared to do it. Think before you act. What a wonderful mantra that I feel like I've heard since a, since the beginning of my life. And then, you know, you get older and things feel so rushed and you're following all of these different rules and you're getting all these different messages. How how easy it is to forget that. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I really think if we're like in touch with our moral intuition, like we'll do a lot better. And one of my big worries about the Harvey Weinstein case or whatever is the temptation is for people to say like, oh, well, I'm not that bad. You know, I never drugged anybody. I never assaulted anybody. But like, so I think thinking about ethics as opportunities in our everyday interactions to make life better for ourselves and for other people it is really helpful um, and empowering. I hope it's empowering. There's just something that's inherently difficult about responding to unplanned situations as they as they happen. I feel like some people just are better at it than others. I mean, how many of us are are are, are say, "Oh, I wish I'd said that," or "I wish I'd thought of that" in the moment? Is that I don't know. Is that is that ability to react in a, in the morally correct way just something that's learned or practiced? I mean. I know it's a it's a strange question, but I'm I just yeah, no, it just feels I, like it. It's hard. I think it's hard, and it's both, and and it's hard. And one thing that makes it hard is we we are just starting to talk about it. We're just starting to talk about what it means to be a bystander to these sort of small things, to microaggressions, to right. So um, sometimes just saying like, "Ouch!" Like acknowledging what other people are probably feeling makes it okay for other people to say like, "Yeah, ouch," and then move on, right? Um, I think it's really hard. I think it's hard for people like me, introverts. um, I think it's hard 
especially for people who've been raised as girls and women, like the you know our traditional notions of what to being a good girl is is not speaking up for ourselves, for putting other people first, right? So, um, you know, a feminist ethics would say that like caring for the other doesn't obliterate our responsibility to take our own dignity seriously. So, I, yeah, I don't want to downplay the hardness of it. I think it helps to just be really upfront about um, that these are ethical moments, that these day-to-day interactions that happen at work, that happen with friends, are opportunities um, to make a difference. We're looking at each other. You, <laughs> in your in your op-ed, I mean, you, you contended that this Jewish communal reckoning still – you know, hasn't happened yet. Is that is that something that's, you know, still on your agenda? Questions we still have to wrestle with? I mean, what? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, like, day by day, week by week, I do think there was kind of a delayed response in the Jewish community, right? Like, you know, it seemed for a while in the fall and winter that every day you'd open the newspaper, sometimes the whole front page was just Me Too stories, right? But they were like falling like flies, like from politics, Hollywood, the media, whatever. And it does seem like there's been a delay in the Jewish community still. Yeah, still, although there's more and more stories of leaders being held accountable. Um, I've seen many more Jewish professionals, including rabbis, being called to account. Um, that's particularly painful. I, I want to say with a lot of pride that I think actually, rabbi, like, we can all do better. We can all do a lot better. But rabbis have um, ethics committees. Reconstructionist rabbis have ethics committees. Reform rabbis have ethics committees. And we're one of the few corners of the Jewish world where we actually are set up with an ethics code and with procedures in place to govern ourselves, to invest, to do investigations, um, and sometimes, um, and sometimes to expel people um, so that they can't pursue uh, rabbinic work. So there's a, you know, it doesn't always work perfectly, but with rabbis, there's there's a place to go with complaints, and that's important for people, for people to know. So anyway. Professionals are increasingly being held accountable. Rabbis are increasingly being held accountable. That is all, you know, good. Also heartbreaking. I think nobody feels good when a complaint comes out, when an allegation comes out. Like, it's heartbreaking that people we look up to um, have disappointed us and the trust we put in them. What I haven't really seen, and I might have missed something, is lay leaders being held accountable. Now, that's like a much trickier thing, but we don't really have procedures to hold volunteer leaders and donors responsible. And in the way the Jewish community is organized, um, people who give money hold a lot of power. That's That's a hard nut to crack, and I don't think we've quite figured it out. Yeah, you know, there are people talking about it. So maybe that will change. Do you feel like that additional kind of weight on your shoulders? Because I'm thinking one of the questions I was thinking about, actually, and you had answered it regarding the ethics committees and rabbis, because um, as a rabbi, like if I, you know, me, a lay person, a peon in this world, (laughs) um, if I do something like if I... 
like, for example, if I lie to Brian, I mean, it's not nice, but I, you know, but it's not as heavy of a weight or as big as a hurt probably as compared to you as a rabbi who has these, um, there's these expectations whether or not um, you put them on yourself or if other people put that on you because of your title. Do you feel that additional weight on you to be extra, extra special, like extra, extra cautious when you act or think about acting? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think there's like a lot of privilege and responsibility that comes with having a title like rabbi. Like what like it or not, rabbis are representing the tradition. For some people, they're representing God. That's a heavy, heavy responsibility. And I think that's what rabbis sign up for. But I also want to say that I, I think one thing that the Me Too moment is teaching us is that it's all about power. Right. Lots of people say in their own defense when complaints come up, but but it was consensual, but it was consensual. And a really important takeaway from this moment is that the power dynamics matter, that when you have someone who has a position of great power and someone who has lesser power, the person without power doesn't have total freedom to consent or not. They're not meeting on an equal playing field. So what we're really talking about with Me Too are abuses of power. And I think with clergy folks, all the more so, because even if a rabbi isn't a direct supervisor to someone, rabbis come into the room with a certain amount of authority and um you know, and and they they gain respect before they open their mouths, and with that comes power, and with that comes responsibility. So rabbis would do, yeah. I think we need to take that seriously, and rabbis are human and make mistakes, and need the considerations of tshuva that everybody needs. And I didn't mean to just call you out as a rabbi. I was thinking about um, an example that somebody told me who happens to be a rabbi where he says, you know, something that I might say in a court of law, as he as the rabbi might have might carry more weight than something like I as a normal person. And there's like other fields as I mean, that's kind of a dramatic example, but there's some other people. There's other fields like, for example, police officers or um, people in the military, um, things like that, where they carry these extra um, this extra level of authority. And yeah, I think that's right. When you're a leader, when the community has entrusted you with certain responsibilities, uh, I think it is right and fair for the public to hold you to a higher standard. Absolutely. Well, something I, I actually I, I really wanted to 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 ask is is um, clearly the ancient rabbis who you've spent years studying inhabited a very different world, different economy, different you know, completely different thoughts of of, of gender relations. Um, would they recognize any of these questions we're we're asking about power and relationships? Is any of it in the text? Is it is it something totally foreign that we just kind of have to try to extrapolate what their values might have informed us about about today? Yes and yes. That's a great question. When it comes to gender, um, the rabbis who are my heroes are not my friends. I think, you know, truthfully, I don't think that they were able to 
I mean, with some exceptions, I think in general, they don't regard women as full human beings and agents of their own destiny and decision making. So that's a problem. That said, I think we can learn from the rabbis um, a lot about what it means to hold power. Um, the stories that they tell about themselves and um, sort of the politics of the study houses and their relationships with students, um, they bring a lot of um, clarity and sensitivity to the workings of power dynamics. Um, and so I think that's something that's not so hard to, to extrapolate. Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think we're getting close out of time. I know. Um, I just have so many different qu- <laughs> questions. I don't. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't want to cut you. You've also appeared on on Hashi Venu, so you're entering the the frequent reconstructing Judaism podcasting uh, guest, and uh, and we hope to we hope to have you back. I know uh, S Saturday Night Live has a has a five timer <laughs> club, so maybe maybe we'll we'll get there. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So check out uh, Trending Jewish wherever wherever podcasts are downloaded. iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Castro, uh, Podcast Attic is, is what I use. Give us a rating, especially on iTunes. Uh, Think it, ethically before you make your posts. But. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we'd like your questions, comments, ideas for episodes. Send us a message on our website, trendingjewish.fireside.fm. Um, we've got a fundraiser in the house. Do you want to make a play for a plug for fundraising? Absolutely. Or? Well, if you're if you like the work that we're doing here at Reconstructing Judaism, you like our resources, you like the podcast, you can support all of the work that we do by going to reconstructingjudaism.org/support. Good job, Rachel. Good job, Brian. Pretty good. Pretty good job. Pretty good job. Pretty good.